and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read, you absolute legend. I hope you're well. I know things are a little bit weird at the moment, um, but I hope you're doing well to just manage your mind as well as you possibly can, as difficult as it may seem when it feels like the world might be on fire a little bit. If you've come here for your dose of positivity, please move on. Um, yeah, things are a little bit weird at the moment, right? So you've got to do what you got to do to manage your time, even if that doesn't include reading and it includes other activities that chill you out, make sure you are doing them. Now, this episode of the podcast is going to be on existentialism. It's a very confusing subject. I just recorded a whole 20 minutes and somehow it has deleted. But we're back again. We're back to go again. Now, very quickly, this podcast is sponsored by The Usual Suspects, right? Athletic Greens, better help. If you want therapy, if you want a green shake, all of the details are in the description. So I'll keep it to one one-minute ad today, and that is for Headspace. This podcast episode is sponsored by Headspace. Headspace, of course, one of the leading meditation apps in the world, and it's one of the most science-backed. They say that they can reduce your stress by 14% in just two weeks. I don't know what a 14% stress reduction looks like, but it is important that you have quite a good relationship with stress management tools. Meditation is one of my favourite ways to manage stress. I've been doing it for about 703 days now. That was quite specific for an about, but... Meditation truly has transformed my relationship with reactivity to things and my response to like negative thoughts. It's better because of meditation. It takes a lot of time and there are a lot of different methods. There are a lot of different courses that you can do on the Headspace app. I've done the anxiety course and the happiness course when I was first getting into meditation and I found it really, really helpful. You might as well. You might even get to doing 700 days in a row. I'd fully recommend that um, because meditation really is amazing, right? Now, if you want to find yourself in Headspace, get yourself to headspace.com forward slash need to read. You get one month of their free entire meditation library, one whole month. And that is the best Headspace offer available. And that is at headspace.com slash need to read. Do that today, maybe. Headspace.com slash need to read. Well, thank you for bearing with me with that advertisement, guys. That is the last time that Headspace will be sponsoring this podcast because uh, they no longer want me, which is, I guess, not ideal for me financially. Um, but it would be an ideal time for you to use their free month because this is the last time I'm going to talk about it. And Headspace and meditating really are amazing. So I'm grateful that I ever had an opportunity to work with them. Uh, but from now, no more Headspace ads. Of course, the other ads that I spoke about um, athletic greens better help if you fancy them the link's in the description but today we're not talking about headspace we're not talking about better help and we're not talking about bloody athletic greens we are talking about existentialism one of the most confusing philosophies that seems to be out there and I've barely scratched the surface of philosophy at the moment and I'm telling you I'm still finding it very interesting I know I promised one philosophical book each month but it's probably going to end up being more when I get round to recording the episodes, I do find myself kind of avoiding recording the episodes because it is quite a difficult topic. But I guess that just pushes me intellectually and I should be grateful for the opportunity. Look at me, just full of bloody gratitude at the moment. What has happened? I'm not actually. Um, 
really. I, I, I don't actually practice gratitude so much anymore. Um, but enough of that. Let's talk about existentialism. The idea of existentialism is a philosophy that focuses on our existence, the very core of what it is like to be a human. And it was born, it was born out of a few people, the big names from early early on, like mid-1800s, like Nietzsche, Soren Kierkegaard. Nietzsche is born in Switzerland. Kierkegaard is a Danish bloke. Both of them, as it seems, and if you start looking into philosophy, and more specifically the philosophers behind the philosophy, you'll see that most of them were not that sound. There was a lot about their lives that was truly fucked up, and Kierkegaard just sounds like a prick and Nietzsche sounded like a rude individual as well um, and he just liked to goad people and he liked to make people's lives difficult and Kierkegaard was quoted saying that if I was to meet someone in hurry I would give them a lame horse that would be pretty annoying I imagine if you were in a hurry somewhere and someone gave you a car that only goes three miles an hour you'd be pretty pissed off now imagine if you have to have that with a horse it would be doubly annoying um, but what they kind of believed is this is where it gets a little bit negative life is full of suffering and anguish and that you have to just throw yourself into it the best possible move is to throw yourself into life now Kierkegaard kind of like Sartre who I'll speak about in a moment believed that the constant choosing in life causes this kind of pervasive anxiety it's like a feeling of being stood atop of a cliff right and he says that when you are stood atop of a cliff, it's not the fear that you're high up that scares you. It's the fear that you can't stop yourself from throwing yourself off. And he calls this, or has said about this, that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, which I like. I like that phrase. And, and I think when I relate that to standard anxieties, that maybe there is some truth in that, that we're anxious about what we are going to do. Right, We're anxious about what our next steps are or we're anxious about what a situation is going to be and what that is going to mean for our behaviour. So the whole the anxiety being the dizziness of freedom thing, I really like that idea. Um, I don't necessarily like Kierkegaard. He was quite religious. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of like super religious philosophers. Um, but he does kind of go back on, on being religious at some point because... If you've if you've read the Bible, I haven't, but I've I've been reading a bit about atheism at the moment, and the people who know a lot about atheism also know a lot about like religious books. There's a story of a bloke called Abraham, and I think this is in the Old Testament. Abraham was spoken to by God, lucky guy, um, but unfortunately for Abraham, God said, "You're going to have to sacrifice your son to me." So he went on a three day hike with his son, took him to the top of a mountain. His baby son, by the way. Um, like really truly defenseless um so abraham this baby's father was going to kill him um on top of a mountain because that is logical in the eyes of god apparently as he got to the top of this mountain god was like wow do you know what you really are committed to me mate so i'm gonna say that you don't actually have to kill your son and he sent, sent that message through an an angel and kierkegaard uses this story to think about how we should throw ourselves into life with utter faith that it's kind of the right thing to do. So we throw ourselves not into faith, but into our own lives, and we conduct them in an affirmation of every moment, exactly as it is, without wishing that anything was different. 
and without harbouring any kind of resentment against others or against our fate. Which sounds like quite a nice idea, right? And this gave birth to other parts of existentialism or, or parts of the jigsaw, like phenomenology, which is essentially the, the philosophy of stuff, of things. Like existentialists have, have done studies or, or, or philosophized about like an apricot cocktail. Or Jean-Paul Sartre in his um, book Nausea had about 10 pages dedicated to a chestnut tree. Like these people paid a lot of attention to what seems normal to everyone else. And I quite like that. I like that kind of depth of thought. 10 pages to a chestnut tree, maybe that's a bit much, but it would be quite cool to think at that level so that you'd be able to do that. Now, Nietzsche, Nietzsche's philosophy I'm going to get into another day because I'm going to read a couple of Nietzsche's books. Um, but the, the first sort of figure in existentialism that I'm going to talk about who isn't Kierkegaard is a man called Heidegger. Now, if you've listened to my podcast with Oliver Berkman, hopefully you have, it's probably my best podcast ever, he introduced me to the idea of Heidegger or Heidegger's ideas. Heidegger was quite an interesting individual. He seemed pretty miserable, TBH, um, but he, he was a, a professor in, in Freiburg University or, or a university in South Germany. And this is in like the 1920s, 1930s. Um, he was unfortunately, bless him, a bit of a Nazi. Didn't really think one of my favourite philosophers would be a Nazi, but look, here we are, it's 2022, anything is possible. Um, and it's not because I agree with his Nazi values. I actually happen to be of, of the mind that Nazis are cunts. Um, but the way that he thought about life was in a really interesting way. And he thought these like ontic questions that we ask about how far the moon is from the sun and, and which planet is in relation to another planet is is kind of pointless and and they do have terminal answers and we can know the answer to these questions for sure right what he believed is that you gain the most from asking questions that seem unanswerable meaning essentially like they're worth asking because you can spend your whole life thinking about them and that's kind of what he did he spent his whole life on the subject of being and being i'm saying there with a capital b because it comes from his phrase or word that he coined called dasein or dasein it's a German word, and it means their being. And that relates to our being in the world, um, particularly kind of like which part of the world we take up, essentially who we are, what we care about, what is our essence as an individual, what does it mean to us to exist? That is the kind of question you can't really have an answer for, right? We will never know what our meaning of life is, and maybe it's absurd to even think that we should have one. But the idea of existentialism is that we get to choose our meaning every day, which I quite like. Another idea from Heidegger that I quite like is that our lives, and Oliver Berkman explained this as well, and, and how we kind of relate to time, is that we're not in time, right? We, we are time. We are essentially a clearing in a forest. And when our time is up and we cease to exist, it closes up again. And really, in, in instead of asking these questions that have these terminal answers and, and doing a load of boring shit that people do with their lives, we should just marvel at the fact that we're even here in the first place. Because, I mean, Ed talking now, not Martin Heidegger, it's pretty fucking incredible that we're alive, right? And we get to be alive right now. And there are all these little things that we can do with our lives. 
we don't have to succumb to the anxiety that it's well the crushing weight of our existence essentially you can flip your mindset quite simply to oh wow isn't it amazing that i'm here wow god there is amazing things out there and this is where phenomenology comes into play you could spend 10-15 minutes looking at the bark of a tree and that would be light work if you're an existentialist but for us in our distracted generation that's quite hard but I've been trying to do it a lot more recently and I've been doing a lot of walking um, since trying to learn about existentialism and I'll tell you what the world is is quite cool to look at really things are bizarre in London, go on the Thames, there's, loads of, there's an Uber boat. I don't necessarily agree with the fact that Uber should have a boat, but pretty mad that they're making stuff float on water. I know they've been doing it for ages, but when you actually think about stuff at this kind of like, oh my God, I'm in awe of this, it's quite a nice way way of doing things. Um, now, Heidegger, I've read a book on him now, and, and a separate book from At the Existentialist Cafe, and I'm still very confused about what he stands for. But his book... Being in Time is one of the most influential works from the 20th century. I've also bought a copy of Being in Time, his book, after reading Heidegger for Beginners, and it looks incredibly confusing. But I'm of the mind now that I'm going to start pushing myself a little bit more intellectually, because I guess that's how we become smarter. And I know that two, three years ago I wasn't necessarily that smart, and I'm a little bit smarter now, and I kind of enjoy being a bit smarter so I'm just going to keep pushing I guess and and I would suggest that people listen to this podcast if you're reading books that are like oh my god this is super easy to read maybe push yourself a little bit not that it has to be hard but I think understanding complex subjects is is, is pretty cool right it's, it's a nice thing to be able to do um now Heidegger also talks about and I've and I've taken this from Heidegger for beginners not at the existentialist cafe talks about authenticity um, and that actually becomes like a major theme in later existentialism so if someone was to say to you be yourself right this isn't a, a call to just not be a phony this is more fundamental it's a call to actually take up the self that you didn't know you had and and to wake up your being and that's like that being in the world, like open that clearing up a little bit more. It's kind of a call to action and it requires you to actually do something and like make a decision. Force yourself into a situation where you have to live, right? I'm not saying do anything dangerous or reckless, but to be authentic, you have to kind of put yourself into a situation where you're going to be tested somewhat, right? And I, I kind of like that idea. I'm, I'm sure at some point soon you'll, you'll find out what my, like decision I'm going to be making will be. I'm not quitting the podcast, by the way, um, but like the, I, f- I feel like my life kind of lacks a little bit of, I don't know, pressure. I feel it lacks pressure. Working for yourself kind of sucks. Um, and and what I mean by pressure is just like something that means you have to step up to the plate. Maybe that's why people have kids or get a dog because they need some kind of responsibility. Jordan Peterson always talks about responsibility. Um, but this is, this is what Heidi was talking about. It's like take some form of action 
that requires you to do something. I like that idea. Um, Heidegger, like everyone, of course, he was a Nazi, um, but he wasn't the most enjoyable person to be around. And Hannah Arden, who was quite an influential philosopher as well, um, and kind of an ex-mentee of Heidegger, she played a role in the conviction of Adolf Eichmann in the, in the trials after the Second World War. She wrote to a friend that Heidegger actually had no character um, and Sartre said something similar in an essay in 1944, speaking of Heidegger's, Heidegger's Nazism, saying that he had no character, and that's the truth of the matter. Um, and and they used to make like jibes at him, saying that there was something about this everyday human philosopher of life that he didn't actually understand himself. And I guess that kind of came from his isolation, because he spent a lot of time in southern Germany um, just on his own which is a shame because once you learn about these philosophers who instantly become your favourite and then you hear what other people say about them, they're then not your favourite anymore and it kind of sucks. So my favourite philosopher changes the wind because I know I said earlier that he was one of my favourites. He still is, but he was a bit of a prick and he was a Nazi, so he makes it a little bit difficult um, for me. But let's, let's stop talking about Nazis now. Let's talk about Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the nicest names to say in the world. Um, he was born in France, he's a French guy, right? And if you've ever seen any photos of Jean-Paul Sartre, you'll, you'll, you'll definitely know who I'm talking about. He had a bit of a wacky eye. I don't know if that's the politically correct way to say it, but he did. His eye was pointing in, in a way that the other one wasn't. And he was severely bullied about that in school. Because that's what kids are like, right? Kids are little shitbags. Um, he also had another difficult part of his life where he was in a prisoners of war camp because existentialism was born out of time pretty much the Second World War and a little bit of the First World War. But John Paul Sartre was put into a prisoners of war camp and bless him, lovely guy, started to write plays to keep people entertained and keep up their morale, which is nice. And I imagine he was kind of influenced by a guy called Arthur Schopenhauer there. He was a pessimist and he kind of believed that life is truly horrible and the only rational thing for us to do is turn to the arts. And that's what Jean-Paul Sartre did in the Prisoners of War camp. And I take my hat off to him. I think that's a really beautiful story that he was kept in a camp under terrible conditions and what he decided to do was to entertain the other people that he was with. And I think that's great. And another interesting story about Jean-Paul Sartre before I talk about what he believed in is he had a mescaline trip and I think it was a few years that he believed this, that he had crabs and lobsters following him around. He knew that they weren't real, um, but he did have the hallucinations from it. So I guess don't do mescaline, kids. Uh, it's the one that Aldous Huxley did in his, his book, Doors of Perception, Heaven and Hell. I think it was quite a popular psychedelics, psychedelic around, around those times. Uh, but that wasn't the end of his dealings with drugs. He was on a lot of pain medication. He smoked like two packs of ciggies a day. He drank a lot. He was on some amphetamines for a large part of his career as well. The one thing you should understand about philosophers is that absolutely not one of these fuckers was perfect. And that kind of gives me a little bit of hope, right? And it should give you a little bit of hope too. Is that these people who will be remembered probably for the rest of time, or as long as we have like a filing system for stuff, or a Google Drive, who knows what it is nowadays. These people who were imperfect, who made mistakes, have produced amazing works that will be remembered forever. So you, you imperfect person listening to this podcast... 
maybe you should be a little bit easier on yourself, right? Because no one's perfect. And I think that's an illusion created by the 21st century. So more and more he believed. Sartre believed essentially that as a human being, you have no predefined nature at all. And you create your nature through what you choose to do. Now, you can be influenced by your biology or by aspects of your culture and personal background, but none of this adds up to the complete blueprint of producing a single person, right? He says that he is always a step ahead of himself, making himself up as he goes along. And I love that. I think there are lots of contributing factors, and maybe this is me speaking from a position of privilege here, that add up to your existence but the kind of most important thing is what you do next and for something to be true I guess it has to be true for everyone in the world that that would be the definition of truth and there are some ideas in existentialism about like our aspects of my culture and my personal background like there there are some truly terrible things going on in the world where people have very little choice people are enslaved People are in like a, a more tame version of that. People are in abusive relationships. Like a, there is a, the extent of human suffering is unknown and incomprehensible to us because there are some truly evil people out there making other people's lives hell. I don't know necessarily if that kind of person who's subject to that would be making themselves up as they go along. Um, I guess they are not their suffering. They are kind of what they they do with it but that doesn't mean that they're out of the situation but should they ever get out of the situation that they're in i guess existentialism would work so it's a confusing topic on whether what these people are saying is the truth right but for sartre who maybe didn't consider some of this stuff he he put his principle into a three-word slogan and that kind of defined existentialism for him and he says that existence precedes essence and what that formula gains in like brevity it kind of loses in its comprehensibility so it essentially means that he has found himself thrown into the world and he goes on to create his own definition or nature or or essence and and that doesn't happen with other objects or beings that's a like a uniquely human thing and he would like to say that you, you might like to think you've defined him by some label wrong he is always a work in progress and he would define himself or create himself more specifically constantly through action and that he believes is fundamental to the human condition having going back to i did a podcast on personality psychology about your personal projects essentially create who you are and that's quite an existential thought is is that the things you do then define you. If you are quite shy, but you're like, fuck it, today I'm going to still be shy, but I'm going to go to a salsa lesson. I would, I, I'm not going to say never, because I don't know what I'm going to be like in five years' time, but a salsa lesson sounds like fucking hell to me. I would not like to do that. Um, but that might make me less shy. I don't really necessarily know if I am shy. But that's how I would become not shy, I'm assuming. Um, echoing, again, what he's kind of said already is that your circumstances are the, like the starting point that you can choose from. So it's not irrelevant 
your starting point because obviously it shape and shapes kind of the choices that you have. Um, but starting from where you are now and where you choose is is the best kind of practice. That is the essence of existentialism. I know we've come 24 minutes into it for me to be like, right, this is what existentialism is. Existentialism is that your existence precedes absolutely everything else. Everything else in your life ceases to exist when your existence ceases to exist. Um, and that's John Paul Sartre in a nutshell. He was actually not a complete prick, um, even though in some ways he, he probably was. He was quite caring, did a lot for movements for like gay rights, anti-colonialism, anti-racism, feminism, and he oh shit you know that idea i said about something not being true for other people i'm just i've just looked at my notes now to jog my memory and he was the one actually who said that if something is not true for the least favored then it is not true so there you go i've confused myself there um but hopefully we've set that white because i will not be going back to edit that um we're going to talk about albert camus who technically claims he wasn't an existentialist claims that he was an absurdist um Albert Camus was a basically a handsome, young French, uh, Algerian or Hungarian, Albanian man, think Albanian actually, who came to France and started working in cafes with Jean-Paul Sartre and, and Simone, Beauvoir, Simone de Beauvoir and kind of took the world by storm with his novels, his absurdist novels that essentially had no meaning to them. And that's the way that he looks at life. He feels that you should have a tender indifference to the world. And he studied in a book called The Myth of Sisyphus. Um, if you haven't heard the story of Sisyphus, I'll, I'll give you a brief overview. So Sisyphus, he wasn't a very good person. He made fun of the gods or did something to upset the gods. So the gods, in a completely irrational re like response to that, sent him to walk up and down a hill with a stone for eternity. So if it's true, he's still doing it right now. Albert Camus kind of studied this in his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, which is essentially just a case of whether or not we should continue living or whether or not we should commit suicide. He concluded that we shouldn't and that we should live, right? And, and at the end, he says that we must imagine that Sisyphus is happy, right? Because he continues to push that stone up the hill. I relate the myth of Sisyphus to a lot of things in life. Take doing the dishwasher or doing your washing or any menial little tasks. Is Every day you get up, you create washing, you put washing away, you then hang washing up, you put it away in your cupboard, you then put it on and then you wash it and, then, and it's a constant cycle, right? There are lots of menial things at life that we kind of just have to do. We shouldn't complain about them, right? These are our tickets into life. We have to conclude that we ourselves are actually quite happy with this because we continue to do them. I get it. Once you get a certain amount of money, maybe you'll pay someone else to do this shit. But most people have to do their menial little tasks and taking care of things. And the whole idea of that seems quite absurd, right? And Albert Camus would have loved to hear me say that. Because absurdism was born from him. The difference between absurdism and existentialism is existentialism, you create the meaning of your life in your action, but in absurdism, there is absolutely no meaning of life and you might as well just fucking have a dance. 
because Albert Camus, not only was he extremely handsome, but he was a hell of a dancer, apparently. So I wouldn't read his book, The Stranger. I've read it before. The Myth of Sisyphus, also really, really fucking complicated. I've read about 30 pages of it, um, but it's quite hard to read. He's just an interesting individual. His book, The Plague, I've heard is the best one. If you're looking for a new novel, it's like an old novel that will be difficult to read. But when you tell people that you've read it, you get to think that you're better than them because it's an old book. Then The Plague might be the one to go for. Now, another prominent figure that I've spoken about already is Simone de Beauvoir. She's pretty cool, right? Um, She wrote The Second Sex, which is one of the most influential pieces of feminist literature that's ever been written. And that is pretty cool. And also, cool fact about that, the Vatican have got her book on their list of banned books because they think it's lesbian propaganda. Because there was some lesbian stuff in there, I guess. You can't talk about feminism without talking about lesbianism, if that's a word. Um, But yeah, stupid fucking Pope banned the second sex because it's lesbian propaganda. What an idiot. I don't know if it's the current Pope... But it's one of them. I don't know if I'm allowed to call the Pope an idiot or if that is a bad thing to do. Um, But if he's banning that because he thinks it's lesbian propaganda, then I don't agree with him as a person. Therefore, I think he's an idiot. So, not apologising for that, actually. Um, Simone de Beauvoir worked very closely with Sartre and she wrote a lot of existentialist philosophy. And it's the same kind of story. It's the belief in absolute freedom of choice, right? And you then have to take on the responsibility of that. And you then have to start some personal projects. And they should probably spring from, like, individual spontaneity, not from, in like, external institutions, authorities, or, or like, person. It was very much about your individual responsibility to yourself to do things that are meaningful to you and not necessarily that are meaningful to your society or the people around you or any kind of authority figure, which is nice, right? And a book, another book I've just read called The Socrates Express, he talks about getting old like de Beauvoir, and I think she aged in a gracious way. She realised that she was getting old and she accepted it. And I think we, as people don't like to accept getting older but i think it's a it's a privilege right to get older a lot of people don't do it don't get the opportunity to do so and when we slow down our back starts to ache our hair starts to gray we maybe don't exercise as much as we used to and we put on a little bit of weight and we give ourselves a hard time for it that's that's not kind of what what life is about this you get a new kind of thrownness into the world world if we're going to go back to heidegger get these new set of situations to deal with where you might actually get to slow down you might actually like that you might get to learn to finally accept yourself at times when it becomes a little bit more difficult to do so if you look at yourself aesthetically and think oh god I'm a shadow of what I used to be because I've got wrinkles or something it's like actually that's a time when you should truly accept yourself because getting older is part of life right I don't know if that even made sense did that make sense? If it didn't, I've actually paused this recording and I've got the book that I found out that bit about de Beauvoir growing old graciously. And he's put together a list of 10 ways to grow old like Simone de Beauvoir. So here they are. And the book is The Socrates Express. And I'll be speaking about it soon. It's by a guy called Eric Weiner. He's a brilliant writer. 
Number one is owning your past. Number two is making friends as you get older. Number three is you truly get to stop caring what others think. Number four, a good thing to do when you're old is stay curious. You can have a lot more time to read when you're old. That's pretty lucky. Pursue projects, which is an extremely existentialist idea. Be a poet of habit. It's a habit isn't necessarily bad and it possesses its own beauty. That must mean I'm old already because I'm a creature of habit. Number seven, good thing to do when you're old. Do nothing. Number eight, embrace the absurdity of the stuff that you're not meant to understand. You're meant to disengage constructively. And I'll read this passage out. So as we age, we cling more tightly to life. We must learn how to let go. We need to practice what I call constructive disengagement. It is not apathy, a turning away from the world. It is a gentle steeping back. You are still a passenger on the train. You still care about your fellow passengers. But you are less unnerved by each bump and shimmy and less concerned about reaching your destination. Bertrand Russell, who lived to the age of 97, suggests expanding the circle of your interests, making them wider and more impersonal, until bit by bit the walls of the ego recede and your life becomes increasingly merged with the universal life. Think of single life as a river. At first, it narrowly contained within its banks, rushing past boulders, under bridges, over waterfalls. Gradually, the river grows wider, the banks recede, the waters flow more quietly, and in the end, without invisible break, they become merged into the sea and painlessly lose their individual being. This, I think, is the final task of old age, not a narrowing of our waters, but a widening, not raging against the dying light, but trusting that the light lives in others. The wisdom of Kairos, everything has time, even this. And number ten is passing the torch, which I guess we have to pass the torch on to young people at some point. Look, I'm, I'm pretty young, right? I'm hardly fucking old. I do feel like I'm old at times, um, just because of my preferences in life seem to be changing. And I guess that's what that's talking about. And whatever time you start to get old, whether that's when your physical body starts to get old or when your mind starts to get old, I guess it's just time to accept it and not not fight against it and let that widening of the river merge into the sea and for you to become this more expansive kind of being if I was to be all hippie about it but now I've spoken about all those philosophers and I've had to re-record this episode it's 7 30 on Monday night you'll probably listen to this on Tuesday morning I'm done guys you're all absolute legends hopefully you might be inspired to look at existential philosophy if you are the book that I read was the At the Existentialist Cafe by Sarah Bakewell. It's confusing and it's more of an autobiography of all the like main characters, I'm going to say, in existentialism. There's the Heidegger book, Heidegger for Beginners, which is pretty good. I've also bought very recently a book called The Irrational Man, which is about existentialism. I've got existentialism from Doskoyevsky. Dostoevsky to Sartre I'm starting to read a little bit more Nietzsche the reason I feel like I'm drawn to this is because that whole philosophy of being seems like quite a good idea for me this idea of learning how to live life and I and I understand that not everyone wants to read these types of books but I'd be doing everyone a disservice if I didn't talk about them at some point in your life your life's going to make a philosopher out of you essentially 
and if you can get ahead of the curve and you can learn some philosophies and you can pitch together and steal from different philosophies about the bits that you like it helps you relate to yourself a little bit more and helps you relate to the world around you of course we do still have to engage in the world but understanding how we can do that in a constructive manner is super super important and that is why i think existentialism is sick even though it has a real bad reputation i hope you enjoy this episode guys you're absolute legends obviously sponsors are in the whatever you call it description of this episode i'm not editing this i think you're all legends love you bye <laughs>